This is a Channel 101 podcast. Again. Okay. Welcome to the Primetime Flies podcast. This is Todd Donald, your host. And Primetime Flies is a Channel 101 podcast where we talk with showmakers, anyone involved in a Channel 101 or Frequency 101 show, past and present. It's a love fest. It's a hangout. We're chatting, getting to know each other. It's, it's a new concept in podcasting that I made up for you. With me on the show today, like he's done a bunch of Channel 101 shows, but there's there's one that someone brought up on a recent episode that they loved, and it's kind of like one of those ones that people didn't give a shit about. People, when they think Hollywood Steve, who my guest is, they don't think of Yacht Rock. They think of like languid dreamwalk through the cryptic subconscious. That <laughs> that other easily forgettable one. I'm so sorry, but like maybe we can do this without talking about that. What do you think? I, I'll talk about whatever. I don't care. <laughs> You're name alias whatever is hollywood steve Uh, correct why what well uh that nickname was bestowed upon me by yacht rock co-creator jd risnar and it came from uh when when i when i first moved out here i was uh doing freelance work for my former employer in michigan and then they uh cut their freelance budget and i had to get some jobs my roommates at the time were doing uh, background work as extras on movies and TV shows. And one day they heard uh, a casting call for skinny, long haired guys. And I was like, Ooh, sounds like a job for me. And I went out for it and it was for the first pirates of the Caribbean movie. Nice. They needed skinny, long hairs to be pirates because the, the idea was, oh, well, they've been out at sea and they're starving, so they're skinny and they haven't had haircuts in a long time. So that's who we need to be our pirates is a picture of stark realism. And uh, so I went out for it and I they, they asked me at the audition uh, who I was afraid of. Like they never they never ask you any questions to be an extra on anything except this one time. And. Like they really wanted you to nail the character of the non-speaking background pirate, apparently. So they asked, who are, who are you, who or what are you afraid of? And I, I said, the captain. And they loved that answer, and they made me a pirate. So I'm, I'm in one scene of Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, real tiny in the background, in heavy makeup, and my own mother did not recognize me. Uh, so that's, that was my uh, screen immortality. But it did get me into the Screen Actors Guild. And after I did that, uh, JD, I'd show up to parties and JD would be like, oh, oh, there goes old Hollywood Steve. Thinks he's better than us now. And uh, so that's how I became Hollywood Steve. And then uh, he also he also helped me get like an office PA type gig at his uh, shitty little reality company that he was working at at the time. And he would introduce me around. He was, hey, this is my friend, Hollywood Steve. He's going to come work with us. So then people around the company knew me as Hollywood Steve. Right. And the company was split in between two separate buildings that were linked by an intercom. So anytime anybody needed you, needed to get a message to you, they just paid you over the intercom. And so people around the company would start hearing, 
Hollywood Steve, call 222. Hollywood Steve, 222. And the whole company would go, who the hell is Hollywood Steve? And then they'd meet me and they'd ask, why are you Hollywood Steve? And I'd just say, well, isn't it obvious? And then walk away. So I had a certain mystique, thanks to JD. Right. And then when he made Yacht Rock, I, obviously I was already Hollywood Steve by that point. So that was my screen credit. And now the internet knows me as Hollywood Steve. So that's the story. That's my origin story. That is pretty cool. It has like these little threads in it. Like you spent time on a, well, it was a fictional ship, but you spent time on the water, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A pirate ship, like a yacht. Uh, don't make me thread it all together for you. But also like the idea of like something catching on and just like unrelentingly spreading until yeah it, people, yeah it was it was a very viral nickname in our immediate social circles a little a foreshadowing if you will if you don't it's in the dick anary um <laughs> it's in the ditch bro <laughs> what's your 101 origin story like was your first experience at a screening was it seeing the web videos um i had i had read about it um i there was this I think it's still going. Maybe uh, there was a stand-up show called The Uncabaret, uh, hosted by a comedian named Beth Lapidus, and I knew of it because I was a big Mr. Show fan, and I knew that like a lot of the core Mr. Show people had kind of come up doing Uncabaret. It was part of this whole alt comedy scene during the '90s in LA, and so when I moved out here, I signed up for the mailing list. And I think at one point they did a screening of like the best of channel 101. And that was where I first heard about it. I had heard of Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub because of heat vision and Jack. Uh, my roommate in Michigan had bought the heat vision and Jack pilot on a VHS bootleg on wow. eBay back in like 1999 or two before I moved out here. So I'd seen that and I was like, wow, these guys are geniuses just for getting someone to pay money to make this in the first place. <laughs> Uh, I was a big fan of that. Wow. And so I read like, oh, Dan Harmon and Roger. Was just, oh, they're the Heat Vision and Jack guys are doing a video contest thing that I should know about. And um, some of my other friends had heard about it. Um, the first people I think who'd heard about it were uh, Stephen Levinson and his brother, Joel, who had gone to U of M and worked on the uh, humor magazine, The Gargoyle, with J.D. Riznar, Tony Zaret, uh, our other friend Sheck Baker, who appears in Smash Boys briefly. Um, they, those guys all knew each other. And I happen to know Tony Zaret's friend, Aaron Blair, who I was who, who I went to Michigan State with, who's now like he's been Conan O'Brien's web guy for like the past, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 or 30 years. There's this whole network of like Michigan uh college comedy nerd people that all linked up with each other on livejournal.com. Oh God. And then either moved out to LA or New York. And, uh, Steven Levinson lived in New York. His brother, Joel lived in LA. He heard about channel one one They wanted to get something together. They wanted to get a group together to do something for it. And, um, they got JD, they got, um, a couple of other, I forget who was in the cast of their first thing, but, the first thing they ever did was a pilot called Kicking Asteroid. And the so my first Channel 101 experience was, 
oh, these people I know did something for Channel 101. I'm going to go check it out and support them and vote for their show. And so that was my first Channel 101 screening was what I think it was in 2004, maybe a year or two after they started doing 101. Right. Um, but that was my first screening was showing up to support Kicking Asteroid. And it was one of those classic early 101 things of like, we're going to just incorporate copyrighted footage from other uh, existing movies because we don't have the budget to do anything else. And who gives a shit? It's this little thing in a bar in Hollywood. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Web video is not really a thing yet. Right. Free YouTube. During the live journal time. We were all like kind of fresh out of like early to mid 20s. Uh, I was finding email to be a difficult way to keep up with people because, you know, you'd write each other letters over email at the time. Yeah. There was no social media yet. Live journals seemed like a, it was a nice way to just keep in touch with people that wasn't just like specifically having to communicate with that one person, right. which could take up a lot of time. And, you know, you'd respond to too many things and then it'd be like a very daunting thing that you'd have to, you know, re respond to like five paragraphs of email as it had grown and eventually you'd just, it would just peter out. So this very early social media was very appealing to me in terms of like, oh, I can keep in touch with people with minimal effort. Yeah. And, you know, we made new friends and when people moved out of Michigan to different places, um, they would kind of already know a few people through LiveJournal. And that was how I met uh, JD was he moved out here after I did and I knew him as the live journal troll who kept telling me to get my hair cut and then we hung out and I was like, oh he's not a troll in real life he just enjoys trolling on the internet the internet is is missing out on on that for sure <laughs> the screening that you mentioned I believe kicking asteroid was the August 2004 screening that sounds right. And what made it into primetime that month were a few shows that, uh, like Laser Fart, The Boo, Twigger's Holiday, you know, uh, also forgotten shows, much much like Out Rock. Like people people <laughs> do not still talk about them. Like, like not legendary within a small circle of people at all. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> think about the fact that some someone that you never thought you'd meet, never wanted to meet, had no reason to want to meet from Canada was like it reached so many people um, outside of what you might have thought at the time. Was there a thought of wanting that to happen? Did you think it was possible or did you? Oh, absolutely not. When, when Yacht Rock started going viral, I think the, there had only been a couple quasi-viral 101 shows up to that point. One of them was kicking the nuts uh, because those guys went on to do Family Guy. And uh, the other one was House of Cosby's. Like mm -hmm. House of Cosby's was the first time I saw a 101 show getting passed around by people outside of the immediate community. Right. Um, so when we did Yacht Rock, I don't think we had any inkling that it was going to do what it did at all. Like we were just trying to come up with something that would get us voted back into primetime. It felt like we'd been knocking on the door, but... You know, it, we weren't quite breaking through. Smash Boys was the closest thing that broke, that almost broke through. I think it was top failed pilot that month. But we wanted, we were trying to, we're trying to come up with an idea that might, uh, that might resonate with people. 
And uh, instead, we made a show about soft rock. <laughs> the, uh, the original idea for Yacht Rock, and I was not around for these meetings, but the original idea was, uh, okay, there's these jewel thieves who live on a houseboat, and they listen to this music. Right. And the whole... So the music all came from uh, everyone was broke and people were going to uh, Amoeba Records and buying $1 vinyl. And at the time, Yacht Rock wasn't popular. We hadn't revived it yet. So you could get like the Doobie Brothers minute by minute for a dollar on vinyl. And so that's what people were buying. And then we'd read the credits and like, oh, all these guys played on each other's records. It's, it's a little scene there, just like this 101 scene we're in. Right. Um, and so eventually the jewel thieves on a houseboat idea changed it. Well, why don't we just do the show about the, the songs? Why don't we just do the show about the people writing the songs? Um, and so that's kind of what the show idea morphed into. And it almost did not make it into the screening because channel one one is a place that is full of movie nerds. It is right. not necessarily full of music nerds. And we made a music nerd show for movie nerds. And there was a lot of like confusion about whether they should put it in the screening or not. Like it had a good one. One big thing with early one-on-one shows, especially is it has to follow the plot structure. You know, the Dan Harmon story circle for five minute plot uh, right. you know, stories. Um, or be narrative. Yeah. It had, yeah. They, yeah. It, it's, it very much had to be narrative. Um, especially with Dan still around to run everything and kind of shape it in his, with what he hoped it was going to become. Um, so it had the narrative structure. It clearly, it had clearly defined protagonists, achieving a goal, running into obstacles, all that stuff. Um, but nobody understood the subject matter. No, nobody, nobody controlling which pilots were accepted in the screening really got what it was about because they weren't like obsessed with dentist office grocery store music yeah <laughs> that they heard in their parents cars and uh so it just barely got in and then the live screening it got a big response that kind of took everybody including us by surprise and then for the second episode jay was like i gotta go balls out with this one and he just like threw everything in there that he could uh, we had a terrible time editing that down to five minutes, but um, they did it somehow. And, and that just got, that was just like, people were over the fucking moon at the live screen. Like we got like, right. it's one of the biggest responses to a show that I've ever seen in person at channel one, like across the board, like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. They love it. They love us. I think, I think we might be rock stars in this, in this, dingy Micro- little movie nightclub in Hollywood for these 200 people or so. What if it wasn't voted back? What if you guys just made one episode with that new... There's, there's no way we would have kept going with it. Okay. Like, we we would have just been chalked up to like, oh, we, we failed again. There's nothing here. Interesting. That new unfolding love or ironic love or whatever it was for this music, it wouldn't have evolved in a state past that definitely i mean i mean you know what we what we found and what we tapped into was there was a big latent audience for this music that you know hadn't it hadn't really found a way of expressing itself publicly it was like 
You know, it was people's dirty little secrets. It was like, oh, I'm into this stuff, but nobody else thinks it's cool. So I can't really yeah, talk yeah. about it with other people. And we gave people a way to talk about it. And then like, you know, come out of the smooth closet, as it were. Yeah. As like, I actively like this music and I think it's actively good. Mm-hmm. And now I see that there are other people who agree with me. Um. And, you know, the, the fact that that audience was there all along, I'm sure that it would have there, there would have been something of a revival of it in some way, shape or form if we hadn't done it. Right. But we certainly would not have continued making the show if the audience hadn't responded to it like they did. Because mm-hmm. we were doing it for Channel 101. We weren't necessarily doing it like, let's revive this music. It was more just like. Let's do a show about something we're interested in for for Channel 101. That's amazing. And then it took off from there. So I think it was uh, after after we were five episodes in, we um, we we wound up in Spin Magazine. Like they did a one page write up of us. Um, and then for the uh, January of 06 screening, uh, we we we'd gone home for. No, there's no there's no screenings in November or December for Thanksgiving and Christmas. You come back in January after Halloween, and um, we 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 were like, oh well, we, we'll just do like we'll just knock something out for like over Christmas when we're all home in Michigan, and that was the Jethro Tull episode, just mm-hmm. rewriting episode one basically. And so in the meantime, we were in spin, and this huge crowd showed up at the January screening to watch the new episode of Yacht Rock. It was just this weird fucking Jethro Tull thing. <laughs> Did not have nearly the infectious quality in the uh, in the soundtrack, in my opinion, that the first five episodes had. And uh, we, we we got voted back anyway. We we were coasting on a lot of goodwill there. So, right. Uh, luckily, it was able to continue for a few more episodes. But uh, that was that was a roll of the dice there, as it turned out. How did it work with? Um... It's ultimate finale happened months and months after the prior episode. Okay, so at the time, the record for the longest running Channel 101 show was 11 episodes for Laser Fart. Right. JD had a plan for 11 episodes, but he wanted to beat the record. And so he had what wound up being episodes 11 and 12 planned, but then he's like, I got to come up with a different one that'll bump us up to... You know, we, we need another plot to get us to 12 plots. And right. that turned out to be the Steely Dan versus the Eagles feud episode. And that one did not go over well with the, with the live audience. It wasn't about the main characters. The stakes felt fairly low compared to a lot of the earlier episodes. Uh, there just wasn't the level of drama that, that could be cooked up for it. You know, it was about this obscure bit of lyrical trivia that's interesting if you're a hardcore nerd about the music, but it's it wasn't as uh, dramatizable as some of the other storylines. And so it did not get voted back. And uh, perhaps in a bit bit of hubris caught up with uh, with the vision for the show. But eventually, since J.D. had the other two episodes planned, he wanted to do them still. And when the uh, WGA strike happened, you know, he, by that time, J.D. was like he's getting married, settling down, starting a family. Like, oh, I got to write stuff for money now. But when the writer's strike happened, he had a chance to go back to doing Yacht Rock, 
and he'd been working on a project with Jason Lee that never ended up getting getting filmed. Uh, but he knew Jason Lee through whatever gig his agent had set him up with, and that was how we got Jason Lee into episode eleven. And that one went that one went over very well with the uh, the audience that we'd built up by that time. Right. We kind of toured behind it every place that had asked us to do yacht rock screenings before, uh, asked us to come back and screen. We, we kind of shot. We took the episode around the country to like San Francisco and Chicago and Brooklyn and whatever wow. else. Would, what these these indie venues that would have us and did a live yacht rock screening for the new episode and you know people were very excited the episode worked out well then we did the finale episode which uh did not go over as well um we did not end up touring behind that as it were um jd had had an an, uh, an idea in mind the original idea for the finale was that uh after the we are the world sessions gene balboa would kidnap people and take them to an island and force them to write soundtrack songs. And it would end up being like this most dangerous game kind of a parody. But uh, he sat with that idea for so long that it no longer seemed fresh to him. And he wanted to do something different than what had been in his head all along. And uh, that turned out to be this weird space opera thing that it didn't make any sense to any of us. And we tried to tell him that. He's like, no, 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 we'll take it around to the bar. Everybody will be drunk. It'll just be a bunch of lasers and shit. It'll be cool. Nobody will give a shit. Uh, then it turned out that people kind of did give a shit. They wanted something of a coherent plot. And it kind of it didn't land nearly as well as its uh, Footloose predecessor. And uh, so that was that. Well, I mean, and then, sorry. And then, uh, you know, since then, JD's had a career as a professional writer. He's, he went back to writing stuff for money. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's like, how would we, everybody's, everybody's like 10 to 15 years older. Like, what are we going to do with it now? Even if we could spend that much time doing something for zero money, people are always like, oh, we can make more episodes. Like, no, yeah, but we don't really have the energy to, to go about making a zero profit, zero budget show at this point in our lives. What's up, buddies? Kayla here, host of the podcast Screen Vomit, which is a movie podcast for geeks and freaks of all kinds, breaking down films from the last 10 years, joined by people in various aspects of the entertainment industry, including musicians, filmmakers, and even several 101ers that y'all know and love, including, but not limited to, Alex Kavitsky, Anna Saragina, and even Todd Donald himself. I love movies, you love movies, I've never met a 101er who doesn't know what a movie is, but even if you don't, maybe you'll learn a few things, so check it out, Screen Vomit, wherever you find your podcasts. The part of me that sings the same song as everyone else, make make more episodes, is singing from the same part of me that would only want it to happen because you guys want it to happen not because we're asking for it you gave us that you gave us the run of yacht rock you gave us the podcast we don't want to get like a yacht rock episode made by people who are like punching into work here's the yacht rock you wanted okay here's the heart to heart episode we never did (laughs) um i don't know if that made sense i think another thing too is that since we made the show, there have been so many more, there's been so much more material out there, so many more interviews with these guys about 
the real stories behind how they wrote these songs. And it's, and, and we've talked about this a little bit. It's a lot harder to write a show like Yacht Rock when you know what actually happened. Right. You, you'd find yourself trying to stick too closely to the reality of it instead of just like trying to get a vibe off these people just from their records and imagining what they must have been like and then trying to make the, you know, the stakes, the dramatic stakes ridiculously high around whatever that was. But that's part uh, of its charm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's harder to just make up those stories out of whole cloth if you kind of know the background already and we've learned so much about the background now that it would be, it would be a lot harder to do now just knowing all that we know about the music, even if we were trying to do completely new storylines from scratch about, you know, different albums or artists or songs or whatever. Given given that you guys did the, I would say some of the most significant work in, in blues brothering this, this uh, era and sound (laughs) Like, how does it fucking feel to both get validation from, like, the artists who are a part of that? And also, like, and I'm sorry, I feel like I'm kind of being, like, trite and asking questions that I know you've been asked before. And I'm sorry, but I... I, I, I... I'm just glad anybody still remembers any of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, people are still interested. Great. It's 2022. (laughs) Well, I mean, aside from being, like, like about the music and making references to to studio stuff that maybe movie and TV people like aren't as into whatever, like it transcended that it was fucking funny and bonkers. It's so easy to love uh, end of rant, but how did it feel to get like validation from like the actual artists as well as have to see things using the term yacht rock that either don't get the parameters, you know what I mean? And like there's unofficial yacht rock books blessed by, Daryl Hall, I think. Uh, well, part of the problem is that we didn't really define it that well in the series. Like, if you go listen to my intro to episode one, it's just like, from 1976 to 1984, the radio airwaves were dominated by really smooth music, also yeah. known as Yacht Rock. We don't really explain it past that. You know, it's coming It's coming from this these very specific set of, uh, you know, album credits where all these guys play on each other's records, and a lot of those guys are the main characters, but we don't really go into like all the connections around the scene right. in great detail in the web series. So I understand why people like don't get quite what we meant or, or um, you know, kind of use it to be synonymous with soft rock in general, which it really isn't. Right. But, you know, we ourselves have learned a lot more about the music since we helped revive it. And that was mostly through the podcast, the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast, where, you know, every 10th episode, we'd make an episode about some subgenre of Yacht Rock. And, you know, we'd get all these Twitter questions about, wait, if this song is Yacht Rock, is this song Yacht Rock? And we'd started doing, you know, we'd start rating these songs on a yachtiness scale of one to a hundred and just did like as many mini-sodes of the podcast just about that as we did regular episodes where we'd try to come up with new genres all together. Try and um, Raps was one of my favorites. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> all, all those songs are so goddamn painful. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> they're um, real. <laughs> yeah, yes. Real songs that people did thinking that they would make money off of them somehow. So the um, the definition of Yacht Rock that we've kind of settled on in the meantime is it's not just music that sounds good on a boat 
which is how people tend to explain it most often. Right. It's not just synonymous with soft rock. It's not like any 1980s song that you might hear at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be this particular scene with these particular centered around these particular people who all played on each other's records. The book that we are working on that is uh, past due the dead. It's it's past the deadline. It's 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 already been due. We're still working on it. It takes a long time to write a book. It takes even longer to make it halfway decent, as it turns out. Right. How however much work you think writing a book is going to be, it's going to be more than that. Speaking for, I'm sure a lot of people, I want it to be the book that needs to be finished right. I would really like it to be finished right and to turn out well, uh, and then to have also to have people buy it. I would love for all those things to happen. But any, the definition we're settling on for the book is it's the sound of the L.A. session musician scene from that time here, the 76 to 84. It's a blend of jazz, R&B, rock, and adult contemporary pop. The, the jazz and the R&B components are kind of essential to having it sound like what we think of as yacht. Like mm-hmm. the yacht isn't supposed to necessarily be just like, oh, they're on a boat. The lyrics are about being on a boat or drinking tea cocktails. It's supposed to be more like this is high-end music, high-end production values, high-end musicians to be played on the highest of hi-fi stereos because it sounds so good. Like that's, it's supposed to be more of a metaphor. Right. Rather than a literal, like it has to be about sailing or. Like Come Sail Away is not. Come Sail Away is not Yacht Rock. Sailing by Christopher Cross is Yacht Rock. But it would be Yacht Rock if it were not about sailing also. Mm-hmm. It just helped. It helps the literal on the nose definition to have it be about sailing. But it's Yacht Rock anyway, regardless of the lyrics. But yeah. And, like it, and like a lot of these people too, like they played on Steely Dan albums. Yeah. Like they had credits on Steely Dan albums. And then they went out and did their own projects or brought that sound to other, you know, slightly more accessible, less eccentric pop artists. And it just kind of pollinated that way. Like Christopher Cross's album, who Steely Dan fans do not want their band associated with Christopher Cross at all. (laughs) But Christopher Cross's albums were all produced by Michael Omardian, who played Mm -hmm. piano on Katie Lied and Asia. There's always a Steely Dan connection that can be traced back. You know, it might be several degrees of Steely Dan, but most Yacht Rock is several degrees from Steely Dan, and you can trace that personnel back to a credit on a Steely Dan album most of the time. That's interesting. Me vaguely trying to put it together. It's like the first episode starts with the Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins link up. So there's something there's something special about that in the in the mix too, right? Yeah, like what a fool believes is kind of the platonic ideal of a Yacht Rock song. It's like the perfect Yacht Rock rock song. It's got the sophisticated harmonies and like key modulations and uh, it's got, you know, that tiny bit of jazz feeling. It's got Michael McDonald's blue eyed soul feeling in it. It's adult contemporary. It's got it's it, like it's just danceable enough to be played in dance clubs at the time. Like I think there is an extended remix of it for the clubs floating around out there somewhere. You know, it's it's the Doobie Brothers, a rock band playing this thing. It's it's that perfect uh amalgamation of influences and it's got that kind of that that happy bounce that happy soothing bounce of that just it just makes you feel like everything is going to be okay and the lyrics are all about lovelorn fools yeah. and a lot of yacht rock songs because a lot of these guys practice their instruments a lot and didn't really uh spend much of their youth dating 
as much. Now, there's a lot of woodshedding that goes on to become a musician that good. And so like, you know, maybe they maybe they maybe they don't have as much luck with the with the ladies early on in life and it colors their perceptions of who they are. And, you know, and maybe, maybe, maybe the women who like to date rock stars maybe don't want to stick around with the same rock star all the time. Maybe they get left. So there's a lot of heartache going on in the in in, in yacht rock songs most of the time. And and what a fool believes is again like the, that perfect epitome of you know so much of the genre gets gets its blueprint from that sound. I've heard the the bounce that you were talking about referred to as the Duba bounce. Yes, and the here's the thing about the term the doobie bounce. I didn't know what it meant for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Is it when you pass reefer around hand to hand? That's 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 the uh, that's more of the uh, the doobie pass. Right. <laughs> the doobie bounce. JD coined the term meaning the back and forth chord progressions that you hear, like this that you know that that riff that goes back to love will keep us together by the captain and Tennille. And even before that, dun, 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 trace dun, it backwards, but, but dun, 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 dun. like you hear so much music from like between that song coming out and around like around 82 or so where like somebody will sing a chorus to some like, you know, adult contemporary, like blue eyed soul type ballad. And then the, just in the background, some piano player will go, dun, 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 dun. Like people are just ripping this off all over the place. It's just in everybody's heads. Yeah. So that's what he meant by the doobie bounce. I, for a very long time, was misinterpreting it. I thought he was talking about the halftime shuffle beat on the Doobie Brothers minute by minute. That, <laughs> yeah. That's also bouncy. It's also very soothing and happy and makes you feel like everybody thinks everything's going to be okay. That's what I thought he meant because that beat also pops up in so many other Yacht Rock songs. Mm. Uh, Steely Dan's Home at Last, I think, is like the the flashpoint for where a lot of these guys heard it. Uh, it. It was like a signature beat from Bernard Purdy, who drummed on a lot of Steely Dan albums. Jeff Percaro put his own spin on it for Rosanna. You know, yeah. this halftime shuffle, it's, it's the default beat of Yacht Rock. If a song is kind of on the fence, but you hear that beat underneath... It's likely that we're gonna, in the end, conclude. Ah, yeah, that's yeah, that feels like a yacht rock song. Yeah, like I trust. Anytime I've just listened to a yacht or nyat, is is that right? Yes, is, yacht or nyat. <laughs> dot com. Yeah, I don't know if yachtrock.com is down or not, but like, um, it is down at the moment. Uh, JD found it to no longer be a useful experience. And uh, I think a lot of the links on there were broken because our podcast Damn. episodes moved elsewhere. So he just kind of, he took it down until we can retool it into something more useful again. Okay. But there was, and possibly will be again, a very large and complete feeling graph. It, it, I, I think it was like a complete list. Like of, a, Oh, of the Yacht Yachts? Yacht Rock chart. That, that, those are on a different site. Those are at yachternyacht.com. You can still access those. Uh, there's a few missing that we haven't been able to get a hold of the guy to update the site in like several years, but but most the vast majority of what we what we rated on the Yatsky scale is uh, is up there and searchable. Mm-hmm. I know that you like a whole bunch of different styles of music and, and albums that are not part of that are not yacht rock, but like yes, I gotta listen to other shit once in a while. 
<laughs> it's neat to to have a fascination with a, a any genre that's like expansive but also finite. Yes, <laughs> like it's definitely finite, but we keep also finding more and more and more in it. Like you know, it's it on, on the one hand, it's sort of like well, we're just kind of looking for stuff that sort of fits this general formula. But so many records were made during that time period and, you know, so much music that just got lost in the shuffle that sounds very good and potentially commercially appealing that plays. It just it still does feel like this almost inexhaustible supply, (laughs) even though it's not inexhaustible. At some point, you're going to run out of Mm -hmm. new stuff to find. But it was such a boom time for the recording industry that, you know, there's still it's still out there. Right. There's still stuff to be discovered. There's still stuff in thrift stores and stuff that you can only find, like just going through every credit on discogs.com, looking for who these people, who else these people played with that hasn't been rediscovered yet. I'm just going to interject here. I'd like to skip about five or six minutes of me describing uh, the era of smooth music that was playing in the mall when I was a kid. Steve Huey sums it up perfectly with the words, a lot of sappy ballads, and I was like, nailed it. And because it sort of descended from Yacht Rock, uh, we can come back into this more interesting thing that he is responding with now. Very yeah, because, yeah, like when we try to, when we're talking about how Yacht Rock sort of died out, it, it, you know, the sound of adult contemporary in the late 80s is very different than what it was in the Yacht Rock era. That that jazz and R&B influence sort of disappears, and it turns into more power ballads. It turns into like this... You know, like you were saying, it's sort of like movie soundtrack ballads as opposed to, uh, you know, this this more hip, sophisticated or, or wannabe hip, uh, yeah. you know, jazz cats doing pop songs to get on the radio. It, it, and, and part of it, too, is uh, David Foster, who is a big, like, early yacht rock guy who loves that stuff, who's like, loves the eclecticism of it. Once he starts working with Chicago and Peter Cetera... That, that that influence from historically black music yep. disappears from what he's doing and it's more to get on the radio as it exists now. And he's kind of a big influence on what adult contemporary turns into by the late 80s and early 90s as it moves away from Yacht Rock. And I can remember, you know, I, I was a big American Top 40 fan for a few years, like late 80s, early 90s. I can remember a lot of the adult contemporary stuff getting played there. Some of it was all right. It was always weird how many like, you know, middle-aged baby boomer artists were finding a second life on adult contemporary radio yeah. at the time. But then it's like, like you said, in the nineties, it turns into more of this like kind of pop bombast, I guess, with, you know, the Celine Dion and the Mariah Carey, like these virtuosic singers who can just sing 8 million notes a minute, have these incredible ranges and, you know, very technically good singers, but they're kind of just all going for broke every time out. It just, great big ballads that, you know, it's very difficult to write a ballad that's that big and sweeping every time out. (laughs) Some of them just kind of fall flat for me. And and that's also like the era where Diane Warren really takes over the songwriting uh, uh, for songwriter for hire mantle from some of the older yacht rock kind of people. And she has her strengths and weaknesses and, She's a very good power ballad writer. She can write power ballads for basically anybody. She can she she can write the same stuff for a hair metal band or a pop artist or like mm-hmm. an arena rock band or the, like all those kind of artists can cover Diane Warren songs, but she doesn't have the same kind of harmonic vocabulary that 
that would liven up a yacht rock song, for example. And, uh, you know, you kind of hear that go away, kind of disappear from the music as more of it wears on. It's true. I mean, you're listening to a podcast right now. Download the yacht rock, Beyond Yacht Rock episode about Diane Warren's songs because they take you on a, a, a very tasty tour. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Wait, did we do one about Diane Warren? Yeah. We did. It's been so many years now, <laughs> I've forgotten what the hell we did. Yeah, I mean, for me, I listened to it like in the last year or so, so it's it's fresh for me, and I can remember. Well, I, good. I'm glad you remember. I can't quote it, but I, I just remember threads of like talking about you know the fact that she didn't know how to write music and stuff like that, and that's how I learned more about Diane Warren. And there were songs that I knew that she'd written, songs that I didn't. One of my favorites too was also the uh, the glam rock thing. Like how many of the hits by like some of the non glam bands in the '70s were just covers of glam songs um yeah I, yeah that was that was one of my favorite ones that dave did too like that because you know i i i'd hear i was familiar with most of these songs but i had no idea where they came from and it's uh you know it's it's this thing where like hey these songs are good they weren't hits in this country let's just steal them let's just redo them so that they're hits this time around oh hey all my favorite songs by kiss all the songs I like by them. Yeah, every everything I like best by Kiss was written by was at least co-written by someone not in Kiss. Interesting. When Kiss writes songs, it's like they're they're only doing it for the concerts. Right. They're just doing they they come up with a chorus hook that sounds good. They just repeat it ad infinitum, and fireworks go off and Gene Simmons <laughs> it's blood and that's all you need. Yeah. But the records themselves, I don't much care for divorced from the live experience until they start bringing in professional songwriting help like Desmond Child and uh, Michael Bolton, who co-wrote my favorite Kiss song, the top 10 power ballad hit forever. Michael Bolton is a flagship light contemporary of my childhood artist, for sure. Yes, yes. Like he's part of that whole late 80s, early 90s transition to a different sound. If you come up with a name for it, that will be, you will be naming my childhood light rock genre i'm just trying to... it's, interest, it's interesting that like there isn't i don't know that there's much adult contemporary radio left like i don't know who's it's so sparse working in that genre it's like it's splintered into like urban adult contemporary which is like like that's where the jazz and r&b influence lives on now right and then i feel like the only other music that's really been being made for middle-aged people like me is uh, certain uh, country and Americana artists. Like country is one of the few genres that will sing about being middle-aged openly. Right. <laughs> and I'm grateful to it for that. And I've got, you know, as, as I've advanced in my years, I've gotten more into country. Right. And I think part of it is just being away from the people I grew up with who were into country and didn't like me. <laughs> But it's also like, you know, country, country, you can find a lot of good country music that will sing about being a grown adult. Yeah. And that's kind of rare in, in other genres. Even in the genres, like if it's happening, you have to like find the artists who are willing to do that, who are yeah, willing to be yeah. their age. In 1980, pre the thing that happened, John Lennon and Paul McCartney were very much Paul's singing about being 20 still and john is literally writing an album about i'm i'm 40 now and yeah and a lot of those like i think part of what it what helped a lot of those boomer artists do you know these these middle-aged adult contemporary type songs they already had established names like people already knew who they were from all their previous projects 
Yeah. And we're willing to follow them into middle age because they were middle aged themselves. And now you don't really have that anymore. Like there's, you know, there's not really a bunch of 90s era artists or, or 2000s era artists who are making middle aged music in their own middle age for middle aged people. Uh, are we, if we're at a, if we're at a brief pausing point, I would like to go take a piss. Nah, we didn't do Can't the paperwork on that. <laughs> hey, it's a me, Mario. Love Channel 101, but hate looking at shit. Try Frequency 101. All you gotta do is record an audio pilot, make it five minutes or less, and submit it to submissionsatchannel101.com! The listening audience will vote for the favorites, Mamma Mia, and the top five shows will return next month. And don't worry, it's all audio, so you won't have to look at any flop dongs. Frequency 101, you won't have to look at any dicks or buttholes. Okay. Did you mind my waiting room music? Lovely. <laughs> Very soothing. That Peebo Bryson. I had an idea for a reality show. It was going to be called Who Wants to Fuck Peebo Bryson? <laughs> Nobody ever bought it. And uh, I think it's their loss, frankly. <laughs> and Peebo's. Uh... The, idea, the idea would be that a bunch of women would live in a house and compete for the right to fuck Peebo Bryson. <laughs> What was the? I think it's a very good idea for a television show. Yeah, the Peebo of Love. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably what it should be called: is Peebo of Love. <laughs> but I think that it really gets to the heart of the premise by calling it "Who Wants to Fuck Peebo Bryce." <laughs> that's a whole genre of television that's doing very well. Uh, if you if you swap out the Peebo Bryson for some bachelor. <laughs> Um, it has to be Peebo Bryson or the premise just doesn't work for me. Yeah, same here. <laughs> you made mention of an enthusiastic music scholardom of sorts. Like, mm -hmm. there had to have been an affinity for not only connecting those dots, but also like an understanding of music, like an understanding of... And what did you have for research then? I, when, I was, uh, when I was fresh out of school or actually before that, um, my, my crappy hometown in Michigan, Big Rapids, was home to the world's largest music database uh, at allmusic.com. And I got a summer job there while I was in college of just kind of doing uh, some proofreading and copy editing, a little bit of writing, and just kind of whatever low-level duties they needed. And uh, when I got out of school, I didn't know what the hell else to do with my English degree. So I uh, joined up full time at the All Music Guide. And so I learned a tremendous amount about music. It was kind of like grad school in a way. Right. Like I, went, I went to grad school for rock and roll. And um, they, um, my, my immediate uh, bosses would always try to push what became Yacht Rock on me. Steely Dan, Christopher Cross. They were real into hollow notes. Um, they would try to push this music on me in my early 20s before I was ready for it. This is boring. <laughs> this is uh, rocking good stuff. 
yeah, I'm a, I'm a rocker. I got, I got an edge to me, you know, whatever the fuck people think in their early twenties about themselves. And, but you know, I learned, I learned a tremendous amount about music there and anything I'd want to listen to somebody on staff had it at home. They, they, They just bring in, they just bring in whatever parts of their collection they could to get other people into what they liked. Uh, so that was a tremendous, uh, education for me. And when I turned 30, it was like, all right, well, I'm turning 30. It's time to get into Steely Dan. That's what I'm going to do. I'll get into Steely Dan. And then we started doing the Yacht Rock show, uh, not too long after that. And so it was, uh, good timing all around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, music is something that I've always kind of, I guess, relied upon to uh, express the emotions I am unable to externalize easily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's, I found that to be true with a lot of like really big music fans that I know. Like people tend to be very reserved and not overtly emotional and, and music seems to help you know, release a lot of that for people or just helps help. It helps you feel your feelings uh, as it were. Yeah. So that I think that was part of, part of the appeal of having me host the Yacht Rock series was, Oh, that guy writes for all music.com. He'll give us some, he'll give us a veneer of legitimacy. <laughs> I mean, so I have a fairly extensive background in the type of writing that we are doing for the Yacht Rock book that we are working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't done it in a while. Uh, it's been a lot of like frantically trying to get those, those muscles back in shape. Right. Uh, after, after years of downtime of not writing about music, but you know, podcasting about music, it, it, it's sort of a different thing, but uh, it's at least in the ballpark. Yeah, I don't know. What was was it? Was there something else you wanted to get at with with that? Or uh, nope, we're done. Um, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was lost in the in the magic of hearing you speak. So um, <laughs> no big deal. In Canada, again, I'm, I'm the last person to know the the deepest impact of of the show Yacht Rock. But it's interesting to know that it wouldn't have it wouldn't have become itself if it wasn't voted back on Channel101.com. Or in the screenings, more so for right. for you, those who go to the screenings in that far off place. Because yeah, generally at the time, there wasn't really any other outlet besides Channel One Hundred One. Like if you if you made a show for Channel One Hundred One and it didn't go anywhere at Channel One Hundred One, then that was it. Like, what was the point in doing more of it? Like, there was no audience. But at the point that you were touring episodes around the country. It was popular because it was the show Yacht Rock. Right. But we it, we wouldn't have made any more episodes of it to tour around the country if it hadn't done well Fair. at Channel 101. Fair. I think the first, I want to say the first show that started producing itself independently of 101 was Chad Vader. It yes. wasn't until Chad Vader that somebody said like, oh, we're just going to keep making this show. There's YouTube now. And it got very, very popular on YouTube. And it, it turned Matt Sloan into like the voice of Darth Vader for, I think, some Star Wars video games because he got so good at doing the imitation for that show. Interesting. But it, it speaks to the idea that like Channel 101 and Yacht Rock 
in cer- certain ways have a lot to thank each other for. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we never would have done the thing without channel one one existing because, you know, you want to do things for an audience and, and channel one one was where you got an audience right. and you could see that you could see a live audience reacting in real time to what they were seeing on the screen that you did. And you could get a sense of like, what's working, what's not working. It's, it, it was a more, um, effective training ground i think than just throwing something up on youtube which it wasn't possible to do just quite quite yet then it's it's better it's better to see people reacting in real time to see which jokes are landing and which ones are not going over well true that i'm i'm surprised it's had the legs that it did while this thing is going viral we're just all still in hollywood working like shit jobs for shit money you know it's not like we're we're not. You can't accept payment not, in love. We're not intimately involved in uh, uh, the spread of this thing. We have no right. idea how far it's going. We're not allowed to make any money off of it because of all the copyrighted material that's in it. And so, like the you know when we when we get invited to screenings in different cities that were you know full of hipsters at the time that like that's that was our main you know perk of that like oh we get to go travel and be famous for a weekend and then come back to our shitty jobs on on monday yeah i mean like i i i micro know what you're saying (laughs) i made the joke of like what you guys can't accept payment in the form of love well we're midwesterners we're culturally prohibited from accepting compliments (laughs) what if we get a big head from it oh no I don't know if this is a compliment or not, but it's it's something that I like to tell people when they come on the show because it's fucking true. Even though I, I repeated it a lot, it's something that isn't something I think of lightly. To be living your fucking life in this shitty-ass world and experience joy is the ex- one of the most exquisite things that life can offer. And what you and the gang created with that show, you created joy. Um, I, well, good. I, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people, but I... There, there was a before I saw Yacht Rock time, and um, that show is uh, its a joy creator. It, it does make you cheer. It, I can imagine why the audience in those screenings uh, went nuts. And also, so I saw, Ch- I watched Channel 101, the musical uh, in sequence after I watched Yacht Rock for the first time. Channel 101, the musical is very catering to those who know what channel 101 is and how it works enough yeah, to get it the was jokes. very much for the people in the room and i got it like just enough and the more i've talked to people like Bacaris and all that it's so neat in episode two i think the main characters of the show making their robot show have a, a west side story scene against the yacht rock boys and i'm like is it the characters from yacht rock or is it the guys who make yacht rock dressed up as those characters are you simultaneously both what was that like? Well, I'm trying to remember it now. I like, I, because I, I remember, I remember being asked to be on that. Like, oh, th- it's nice that somebody is asking me to be on something. Because um, after Yacht Rock, uh, you know, started to get big in 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 the in the screenings, people really wanted to work with JD. JD was kind of like appearing in a bunch of other people's shows and becoming more of a collaborator with like the cream of 101 at the time. Right. And uh, I didn't really, I didn't really share in much of that. I was just the host of the show. Like I didn't have a major hand in its creative direction or, or, 
you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the voice. I was the face of it, but not really the voice of it. And uh, so I remember Channel 101, the musical was being like, oh, somebody wants me in their thing too. All right, great. These guys, these guys are real nice people. 2014, 15, 16, you were making shows like a madman. Sure, uh, yeah. Solo shows. And two, solo which, shows. One of the great things about 101, I'll say very quickly, is that you don't need to get a whole bunch of people if you can't. That's not a reason to not do a show. If you think you have ideas, uh, you should totally go for it. Hollywood Steve has made a whole bunch just uh, with a camera. Camera on a tripod, uh, prancing around in my living room. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I, what I, I like to um, I like to flatter myself that if Yacht Rock was the Sex Pistols, then then my solo stuff was Public Image Limited, where I just sort of try to do more of the weird artsy shit that I'm kind of fascinated with and do it by myself because like. I didn't go to film school. I don't have equipment. I don't, I don't have the confidence in my knowledge to ask a bunch of people to help me make something where I don't know what to tell them to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I also wanted, I, I, I wanted a little bit more of a training ground for myself. I wanted to practice editing uh, because that was what I was doing more of for my job. And right. I wanted to just write some stuff and act in it and i didn't want to worry about like cinematography or lighting or any of the other technical shit on a movie set that i don't understand and can't do and i didn't want to uh make other people spend a bunch of time on my bullshit on my learning experience bullshit so i pretty much just did it alone uh every once in a while i'd invite a friend to be on something if they if they had expressed interest in doing so uh, and, but other than that, I just wanted to kind of do it by myself. And I also wanted, um, I, I kind of wanted to practice failing. I wanted to get over the anxiety of having some, of having my work go in front of other people and not getting a good response. Right. So I felt like the only way to do that was to just make some work that was, not likely to get a good response, but to do it in a way that was still interesting to me and took some risks and like had some ideas and, and concepts that, that I could, you know, maybe five or 10 people like this. Okay. Then good for those five or 10 people. It'll exist. It'll exist for them and for me. Right. So that like, I've always kind of been, I don't know. I've always, I've always been interested in pretentiousness like I, t- I like back in back back in college, I took this this class and it was like the the philosophy of aesthetics or something like it was some graduation requirement right. for my major, and it was it was taught by it was yeah it was a class on aesthetics and it was taught by this embittered chain smoking music professor who had this idea that anyone could encounter a work of art and be able to grasp its meaning just from what was contained within the work of art which is ridiculous bullshit, especially if you're encountering weird experimental avant-garde art. And so he would like show us paintings and have us listening to avant-garde classical pieces and you know, all this other stuff and like read the, the Adorno and, and these other, you know, European philosophers, postmodernism, modernism and, and, and he wouldn't explain any of it to us. 
Oh yeah, he showed us Godard films and didn't explain any of it to us. Like, what the fuck am I looking at? I have no idea. So I, I've just kind of always been fascinated with like the the gap between how this stuff is discussed acad- and revered academically versus the actual experience of you know encountering this art. And so I was always fascinated. Like I, I used to make my family do an art film together at Christmas. It would always end up like 10 minutes long. I'd write it. It would make no, it would intentionally make no sense. And uh, it was always a good time. We'd always make my dad dress up as some sort of foppish dandy character, which was always fun in and of itself. And uh, uh, he would always, for some reason, go along with it. And so we have like seven or eight of these things that were all, I just shot them all on mini DV or VHS to begin with. And, I didn't have access to editing equipment for the first few. And so anytime there was a, 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 a botched take, uh, I would just record over it. So there's no blooper reels, unfortunately, from the first ones. Um, but anyway, when I thought, like, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was, I had still been going to channel 101. I wanted to start contributing again, but all of the, all of the movies that, people were making for 101 were so technically above what we were doing when we right. all started out when our generation started out well this was of course i'm sure you already know this was the post moving to the downtown independent era yes this was the downtown independent era this was uh it was it was a better experience all around for many reasons but it kind of lost that sort of punk rock diy feel to a lot of the early stuff you know, this was this was stuff being done by people who wanted to work in the industry at what they were doing. They wanted to be, you know, cinematographers or editors or what have you. Right. It was and like a, it was, it was the was, filmmakers 101 venue. Yes. It was, yeah. There was a level of professionalism that could only be achieved by not having a day job and having all your time to devote to making this incredible show that nobody else was going to be able to duplicate. Um, and so like. I was like, well, how can I contribute to this? And so I just like, okay, I'm going to just anytime, anytime a, a, a real serious artist wants to put their aesthetic over, they have to do a manifesto and just make it, make it, make it real pretentious. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get back to old school 101. You have to use copyrighted material. Uh, it has to be shot four by three on mini DV. Yeah, I don't care about it, all this HD bullshit now. It's got to be the same way it always was. You have to have visible apartment walls in your shots. Uh, what was the other one? There was another one. But anyway, I put those all together and I, I called it Dogma 101. It was the pure natural essence of Channel 101. And then I just shot shows in my living room on, on a, 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 a camera on a tripod, mostly. I, I like the idea of parodying these, these uh, you know, the kind of art films you'd watch in like the history of cinema class or something like that. I like the idea of trying to tell that kind of a story in five minutes without any of the artistic uh, ability of the, uh, the filmmakers from the originals. So that was that was that was kind of what I, I I wanted to make pretentious art films in my living room by myself for Channel 101 is what I'm getting at with all that that long spiel. No, no, and that's I, what I did. It's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I want the DVD. All of the ones that I made, including the ones that were not accepted into the screening, are still up on my Vimeo page. All right. I'm I think ha- they just barely all fit before my limit ran out. To quote the now defunct Channel 101.com. 
the caption for Purple Squid episode one is another singular vision from Dogme one one author Hollywood Steve Huey to try and describe the show would be a folly. It says. <laughs> and, Here's how I would describe the show. What if you tried to tell the basic plot of Purple Rain, but the soundtrack, instead of being one of the greatest pop albums ever recorded, what if the soundtrack was a bunch of weird, inaccessible avant-garde shit? And then you did that, you told that in five minutes, shooting it in your living room. Well, that's Purple Squid to me. It was the end of your experiment in failing because it got voted back. Yes, yes. That was the only time I've ever been on the primetime panel was after Purple Squid episode one got voted back. And it taught me that to take my solo show game to the next level, I had to dress as very visually distinct characters. It had to be more than just fake mustaches. (laughs) Yeah, I think and everything broke right for me that month. I think like one or two other shows was self-canceling. And so there they were like not allowed to, they were, they were not going to be voted back. And so a show that may have ended up seventh place in, in most other months ended up in fifth place for this month. Like, wow. Okay. I, I can't believe I did. I, I, I did. I practiced this mode of creating long enough that I got good enough at it to get a show voted back, even if it was a bit of a fluke. And so I was on the primetime panel for one month, and that was it. Well, uh, it the next month, things things got back to normal. <laughs> with, with half the votes of episode one, Purple Squid coming in at... Screening was July 30th, 2016. And it was... The website doesn't have the order. What place did it get? Uh, I don't remember. I don't think it finished last. Usually a, ninth or tenth place was about where my stuff would end up. Huh. Purple Squid got a chanty that year, didn't it? Uh, yes, I won Best Actor. I was nominated for in like four or five different categories, including, this was uh, greatly amusing to me, including cinematography. <laughs> like, I just put the camera on a tripod. Like, that's, please don't give me that award. So you're telling me that some kind of Chani Awards, they decided to do an ironic nomination? Maybe that was it. I don't really know. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I was, I was also nominated for Best Director, essentially for directing myself. <laughs> like, I don't think I deserve this one either, but right. <laughs> it is an honor just to be nominated, as they say. <laughs> How are you to work with as an actor, speaking as a director? Um, I just want to keep redoing shit because I don't think it's good enough, and I can't, like, see what I'm doing until I stop the tape and rewind it and and go watch it oh i fucked up that take so as an editor i will say that it was good practice editing out my own fuck-ups and covering for my own fuck-ups just like it is in in regular real life tv right do you believe that you're good at the shit that you do and and make and do you it depends on the shit really i mean it's uh Do I think I'm a good director or cinematographer? No, absolutely not. I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, am I a decent writer? Well, it depends on what I'm working in, and uh, you know, I'm better at I'm better at giving notes on other people's story structures than ironing out my own. 
Am I a good actor? I don't know. Maybe depending on what role I'm playing, depending on how believable I am as that character in the first place. I don't know. Maybe I've always kind of felt like I'm not emotive enough to really, you know, be a, a truly, you know, versatile professional kind of an actor. Um, am I a good editor? Fuck. I don't know. I'm just editing shit in my own living room. <laughs> Uh, kind of hard to tell sometimes, but, um, you know, I guess, I guess it's a question of like, I think that I have some talent, but, you know, at some point you have to turn the raw talent into practice skill. And that was really what I was going for is like, I need more practice at all of these skills just to have that experience, just to, just to work at something and have some results in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent, I spent, I spent a lot of time just, you know, kind of afraid to do anything because it wouldn't, you know, I, I, I know that there was a, a learning curve to anything that you want to do, any skill you want to practice. And, you know, I was very resistant to having those early failures go in front of anybody, but, you know, you kind of have to do that if you're going to, ever create anything that's that you're ever going to share with anybody else so you know i i really wanted to get over that and uh i think that i think i did to the point where once i stopped failing at what i was doing i just didn't know where else to take it right like after purple squid it was i kind of felt like oh shit do i have to make these good now like i don't know how to do that this was right. this was uh, this was a fluke, and I don't know what I did to get it good. And you know, I think I I, I think I only ma- I only made one other pilot after that. That was around the time we were getting very busy with the podcast, and 2016 was the first year that we did it, and we were doing an episode per week, and that was very holy shit. That's a lot of work, as it turns out, to do a podcast episode per week. Um, and I ended up I ended up doing another pilot early the next year um that didn't i think it just missed getting into the screening and i tried to re-edit and that one just missed getting into the screening and after that i was just kind of like i don't know what else to do with this i tried to make this one better than my usual stuff and maybe i did but it didn't get you know the 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 stars were not aligned in its favor and I have other things to do now and I'm not sure that I know where to go with this particular little gambit anymore. It just kind of slipped away from me. And once the momentum was gone, it was like, I could do it again, but I don't know. Like like there's a, there's a bridge to be rebuilt to it somehow. And I'm not there yet. Well, I mean, sorry, I say, well, I mean, so fucking much. So let me have this moment. Yeah, you know I, what I'm saying. I'm I'm whipping myself in my brain. You, you're doing okay. You're fine. All right. All right. Sorry. Everything's gonna be okay. This is a good program. <laughs> it's a good program. I'm JD Riznar. It's impossible to hang out with JD and not adopt some of his speech patterns. They're just very infectious. Well, I I feel like if you ever want to sell anyone on anything get jd riznar to talk about why it's cool and yeah. even if he has to make this it is up, real sweet yeah you want to know what i like about oranges fucking color first of all and then you peel them and you got this delicious fruit inside it's fucking crazy but and like real sweet <laughs> real sweet 
natural sweetness and sucrose. Uh, no, I, I don't. They got vitamin C and everything. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's like you're a kid and you get like a fucking orange on a sunny day. It's refreshing. <laughs> I'll just tell you. Hey, you play. You're playing soccer. You get an orange <laughs> slice. Then you can go back out and you can play more soccer. <laughs> That, I mean, if oranges ever needed a PSA, that's that's the one. That's great. Do they still yeah. play the underwear ads and stuff on our podcast? Oh shit! I don't know. Are they MeUndies? Probably. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> no, there was Mac Weldon too. I can't. Remember. It's been a while. I wouldn't well, think that they would, but I don't know. I don't know what the hell is part of the show and not. Welcome to another episode of Something Else I Like, and your host JD Riznar. Old computer hum. (laughs) (laughs) It's real soothing. It puts me to sleep. I sleep (laughs) like a baby with old computer hum. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. All right. All right. That's He'll never be on the podcast now. Um, (laughs) I want to offer you anything I can by the way of happiness and joy. uh, Just as an offering of like, thanks for the joy that you've contributed to my life with the shit that you made. Well, thank you. I wish uh, the same for you, sir. Thank you very much. What w- What are some of your favorite things that bring you joy in your life today? It's, well, since the pandemic, I got real into uh, fancy beans. I ordered a lot of heirloom beans from Rancho Gordo. I make, I make, I make a pot of beans every week or two. It's real nourishing. I've never shit better in my life. It's fantastic. Sleep like a baby. Uh, I, I shit like a baby. <laughs> I got real into I got real into tinned fish. Uh, I, I filled up my freezer. I filled up my freezer at the beginning of the pandemic, and they're like, "Oh, I need to stockpile more shelf stable protein." So uh, I started. I, I'd, read, I'd read all these lifestyle articles about like, oh, in Spain and Portugal, there's a culture around the high grade tinned fish. They're like, oh, that sounds interesting. I can just hoard that for a few years. And so I've got a collection of uh, uh, various canned seafood in my in my kitchen. You're eating tin? A tinned. Oh, tinned. <laughs> it's what they say in Europe to be sophisticated. It's, it's tinned fish, is it? Right. I subscribe to this newsletter called Popping Tins. And this oh. guy just like reviews different canned seafood that he's eaten. Get some recommendations for new things to try. What else? I like scotch. I like to drink scotch. Nice. Uh, pretty much all the booze in my house now is uh, 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 hard liquor because that doesn't go bad. Unlike beer and wine, which eventually you're going to want to drink. Yeah. Um, yeah. What else? Uh, I'll be real joyful when this fucking Yacht Rock book is done being written. Mm-hmm. And I can listen to some other stuff more regularly uh yacht rock still brings me joy but there are times i'm like i don't know what the fuck else to say about yacht rock well you do do you at least have any of you contributing to the book just practice giving yourself recess to to sort of reset or is it like um that sort of happens unofficially and not on purpose right um, it, like I think I have, it needs to happen on purpose. I, I, I recently took a bit of time off to deal with some other things, including starting a new job and 
right. commuting for the first time in, in in several years. You know, it's it's also like we're technically way behind our vague deadline and we would like to get this thing done so that it's not constantly hanging over our heads. It's been constantly hanging over our heads basically since the beginning of the pandemic because we signed okay. the, we officially signed the deal right before that happened. I must have forgotten. It would that. be nice to have free time again without anything hanging over my head that I'm like I should be doing this, but instead I'm reading about scotch and tinned fish on Reddit, <laughs> looking for buying recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, keep an eye out for our Yacht Rock book that'll be out at some indeterminate point in the future, but hopefully either later this year, 2022, or the spring or summer of 2023. To be determined. That'll be published by Little Brown UK, and the American rights are to be determined. Little Brown US might want to pick it up, or if they don't want to pick it up, if, they, if they're like, oh, this doesn't sell in the UK, it's not selling enough. Then we have the option to shop it around to another publisher here in the U.S. So I don't have anything uh, more concrete than that at this point, uh, other than we are working on it and we're doing good work and we think it should turn out pretty good. And it'll be better than any other Yacht Rock product on the market right now, we think, we hope. It better be. You hear that? I mean, I'm not taking credit for that news. But like it's from the horse's mouth through yep. my podcast. So that is an up to the minute update on the progress of the Yacht Rock book. Beautiful. Not to be confused with the Yacht Rock book, a title officially taken already by right. another writer. I can't wait. I fucking in- dog. Listen, I, I enjoyed the shit out of chilling with you. Yeah, uh, bro. Yeet. <laughs> It was dope and fresh. And I, I thank you very much for your time. I mean, if you've made it to the end of this podcast and you haven't watched Yacht Rock yet, you might be a new one one er It should have been the first thing you watched anyway, but like, uh, go and watch Yacht Rock now. We gave you enough incentive, I think, somehow. Steve, thank- Hollywood Steve, thank you for being on Primetime Flash. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for still being interested in the stuff we did. And uh, stay fly. This podcast features music used with permission from the Hollow Scene EP by Postmodern Machine. Available wherever you get bandcamp.com, but please visit postmodernmachine.com. This has been Primetime Flies a Channel 101 podcast hosted by Todd Donald. Thanks for listening.